Hello and welcome to End on End. I'm Brian. And I'm Ken. Is this the first time you've been on the show? I know the first time co-hosting. Yeah, no, I have not been on End on End before, but I have had the pleasure of doing episodes of your other podcasts. Right, right. You've been on two of my other ones. Yeah. Well, now you've got the trifecta. What do they call it when you get the Grammy, the uh, Tony, the all those awards? There's a The EGOT. Ego, yeah. You got the Gathy Egot. Yeah. Yeah, working on it. Well, and, and you know, hopefully as you continue to start even more podcasts, the yeah. uh, invitation will exist. Exactly. There is one in the works. So. Nice. I wouldn't I wouldn't want it any other way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so today we are talking about the Sutra one and only seven inch, only record, not only release. But this short-lived band, were you in D.C. at this time, Ken, still? No, no, I had um, left to go to college in Santa Fe. And so I was trying to think, like, maybe the summer of 91, I was home for a few weeks and maybe saw some shows. But I I don't really recall um, spending much time in D.C. that summer. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious because I know you stayed around. I, I thought you stayed around longer than me. Yeah, and um, then I was in Santa Fe, and then I took a year off, and then spent some of that year back in D.C. before going back to Santa Fe to um, go back to college and finish those three years there. That's right. Yeah, we've uh, been in many towns together. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Well, and so I I feel like during that era, I was getting some exposure to things that were happening in D.C. because I would come home, you know, during holidays or whatever. But also, obviously, because we had come from there, we were still very interested in what was happening. But something like this release, I was unaware of it at the time. And it it just kind of felt like there were a lot of things happening that were very... A lot of projects like this. Yeah, exactly. That were very interesting and creatively stirring for the people that were here, but maybe not as well distributed or known outside of the city at the time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This one fits the bill, but we'll get into that. But you know what we do up top? We BS for a while. We, in other words, we talk about what we were excited about, what uh, it's inspired us in recent days, uh, be it music, literature, life experience, etc. So why don't you uh, do the honors and let us know what you've been really digging lately? Cool. I have uh, two music-related things, but like the best of music-related things, it's not limited to music. It's also experience. The first of which is uh, the band The Clientele, who refer to themselves as The Clientele. I guess (laughs) there's a distinction between if you're uh, British or French, how you pronounce the word versus Americans. Um, Because they always say, uh, yeah, the Americans call us the clientele. But they have a new album out. It's called I'm Not There Anymore. And it's very uh, ambitious. It's an expansive work relative to some of their earlier work. And I've just uh, put together some thoughts about it that I'll run through. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you want to ping pong, you could do something. And then I can come back to my second recommendation. Or if you want me to just keep going through the second one, I'll be glad to do whatever you want. Lay your thoughts on us and... uh... We'll go from there. Cool. So uh, I haven't spent a significant amount of time with the work, partly because it is so expansive and ambitious, and also because there's a part of me that's just so excited about the fact that there is a new record. 
that um, I want to take my time entering it and really going for it. But I will say that the it's very clear to me that it is both ambitious, but it also is successful perhaps beyond its own ambitions at embodying something within the band that is both a continuation of everything that they've done before, but also really broadening the palette that they're using. Obviously, because it's a early days with me, uh, my understanding of the record will likely change over time, but it's really rewarding so far. I think it's a stunning record. Well, for someone who is unaware of them, and I'm only slightly aware of them myself, like what's the sound like and how is it different from uh, previous? Yeah, sh- sure. I'm, and I, I can kind of run through some particulars about that, but I'll just directionally paint to say that in their earliest iterations, they're a guitar-based drum band, sometimes two guitars, sometimes one guitar, that is using a lot of um, treble and reverb and is kind of referencing 60s psych and British folk, but um, attempting to do so within the um, expression of kind of day-to-day experiences, especially when they started as a young band. It was in their little suburban uh, ideal slash boring town that they uh, sought to infuse their lives with creativity, but it, it has the character of both small and homemade and spun and, and referential to certain sounds that came before. And over time, um, as individuals, they've grown more and more sophisticated with how they pursue those preoccupations and expanded the instrumentation for a period of time. They were a four-piece that included a keyboard and violin player who did a little bit of percussion and female backing vocal as well. And then they contracted back to a trio. And that's the core unit that's continued over the last, I think, three records um, and, and done tours in that iteration again. But the sound on this record goes wide palette, even though it's still those three principal players. That's super helpful. And what, what do you mean? Uh, so wider palette when i think a wider palette i think one more dynamic and maybe layers or space but also you know often added instrumentations but this is more minimal than what they had before how is it what in what way do you oh, actually to the contrary it's more maximalist than what they've done mm. before so i think thematically although there's some specific Uh, focus points within the record, it by and large is thematically consistent with, again, what I would call like the philosophical or uh, psychological preoccupations of the band. But um, musically, it's not just the choices of instruments and the scoring of those instruments within arrangements, um, but actual song structures as well. Um, Mm -hmm. The very opening song is in some ways a, a salvo that says this record is ambitious because it is a song that does not follow a a clearly cyclical pattern. It has many, many parts and moves almost um, forward, but at the same time, because there's so much thrust of memory and thinking of specific people or places within it, it feels like it's not just one directional, but it's definitely linear as a um, song structure. And then, as you would hope, does some weaving 
and then also gets referenced again as the record goes on. So that's an example of the maximalist instinct or impulse within the record. You know, also, while I describe it as maximalist, it's a very clear record. So there's a lot of elements that are present within it, but you can hear each of those elements. It doesn't lose itself within overly uh, stacked and or complicated uh, arrangements where frequencies are interfacing and getting in the way of each other. You can really hear a lot of the specific elements, even though they've expanded to be many, many elements as opposed to their kind of reverb drenched guitar and vocal arpeggios um, Mm -hmm. with really interesting bass lines. So, you know, I, I think that, that a part of the sonic clarity of the record is consistent with what is an intention to make this a very clear work of art. Like they were very intentionally, they they knew what they were doing by going so ambitious. Um, and it, it's very successful in that way. You know, I, I think of it as kind of like a willful maximalism. Like a bursting of ideas versus cluttered songwriting, you mean? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and also a, a resistance to just kind of rest within what they know they can do well without entirely removing the personality that drove those original expressions to be so successful. Um, so they're, they're, they're artists. They're clearly pursuing something other than just putting out another record. Right. Um, and and it's, it's, it's really awesome in that regard. They're on tour. Did you see them? I did. I did. Um, and it was great. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, they were here in D.C. Maybe it was just I can't even recall. Maybe last weekend. I've seen them a number of times and I'm always very um, grateful and feel lucky to have the opportunity to be in the same room with them as they make these songs. They did bring a little bit of pre-recorded elements, which I haven't seen them do before, like a um, because there is like some sub bass elements or drum loops um, that were utilized or even piano interludes or piano parts that because they're a three-piece now, the drummer would kind of um, do with the synthesizer whilst still being behind the kit. And uh, something that in the live context, something that's very interesting about the band is you realize a few things. One is that the guitarist and the singer's name's Alistair, he's very physical with his instrument, but because he's finger-picking and arpeggiating almost everything, the chords have no um, transient attack. So you don't hear on uh, downbeats this um, hard attack of a guitar. You hear almost the appearance of chord tones in between beats or measures. And so it's more like space comes or sound comes to the surface of a space as opposed to pushing into the space. And it's it's really it's really interesting how moving and effective that can be just as sometimes, you know, the exhilaration of like, you know, heart attack and strum can really convey feeling and uh, change a a room. They're a band that's very understated and doesn't have rockisms or, you know, uh, demonstrative gestures from the stage, but that's not to suggest that there isn't a kind of focus or physicality to what they're doing. That's a part of how they generate the sounds. And in addition to that, uh, their bassist is really, really good at melodic counterpoint to all of that arpeggiated guitar. Uh, It's really amazing to hear in a um, live room the way in which 
each melody point continues to reverberate or echo as the guitar responds to the bass or the bass responds to the guitar, et cetera. And on the whole, the drums are pretty soft and brushed and quiet. There's not a lot of insistent cymbal work or hard hitting drums. So it, it, it it's really a great experience. It sounds interesting. You know, they, they've got a lot of fans in our discord uh, group in our uh, Patreon discord group and, you know, I I've heard of a number of people bring them up, especially in the last in light of the new record coming out. So, yeah, maybe it's time I got to actually give them a fair shake. Yeah, I think the record has been surprisingly well received. I don't say that from my perspective because mm-hmm. I, I in a year where they release a record, it's very likely going to be my favorite record of the year. But I think that it's surprising to them that so deep into their career. In, and in response to what is a clearly expansive or ambitious record that they are getting very positive press. And, um, and I think that's, that's really awesome. All of that fits really well within things that I'm very interested in. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything about them, uh, scream Ken Smallwood to me. Exactly. I've heard. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's cool. And that brings up a question I've got just for you in general. It's it's fun. Uh, me and Jeff, past co-host Jeff Kaplan, talk about this kind of thing often. And it comes up on the show. Like to me, the, the psychologically interesting aspect of, but also just in general, how people file their records, etc. But as you were talking about this album and ingesting it, made me think about. You know, I've changed how I do it, but how do you like say with this record that you knew you were gonna wanna really absorb? Like, do you listen straight through every time at first, or do you do one side? Do you do a song or two at a time? How do you do it? Yeah. So uh, that's that's interesting, and we have to contextualize it within our modern era or our current era because uh, I avoid streaming when I want to be serious about listening until I've reached a point of familiarity that then I'll still enjoy the process of listening to it on a a streaming platform. So um, my intention will be to sit the whole way through, but what I actually find happens is that I'll become enamored with one side of the record Mm -hmm. and I'll play that repeatedly and to the point that I'm very tempted to see, oh, is the other side, or in this case, the other sides, because it's mm-hmm. a, a double record. You know, are are they as conveying or powerful as that one? And and that kind of goes back to you know when we were young, where you would uh, have something maybe on a cassette, and you would just listen to those five or six songs, hit repeat, you know, rewind, go again, hit rewind, go again, and then maybe a month into just really obsessing on a record, you would flip the tape over and listen to the other side. Yeah. Definitely. And when I was young, I feel like I was probably more Catholic about it in that uh, I would just listen straight through and then repeat, rinse, repeat mm-hmm. numerous times. And, and and certain things would jump out through that process. But, you know, as time's gone on, especially by now, and maybe it's part of doing another podcast where that you've been on, where we talk about just one song for the whole podcast. So now I like, it's rare that I'll play even a whole side if it's a, you know, one LP or whatever. 
uh, at a time. I'll listen to the to one song or at most two or three, and then slowly kind of keep adding stuff in and seeing the flow because I want to really understand. I don't want it to fly by me like I let it I used to let music just wash over me. And now I'm kind of more deliberate when I inhabit it. Yeah, and and I think that if I really understand my own listening process with a band where there is a lyrical element, a lot of times where I'll kind of focus my initial repeated listens will kind of be driven by a lyrical phrase that really catches me. Yeah. Um, and and I'll have like that moment of like where your breath almost catches or you or you think to yourself, wait, did I just really hear that line? And it's so conveying or so intriguing that you want to listen just to that song again and to hear if now that you know what the line is, does it change how you hear both approaching the line or after the line? And so uh, it's not exclusive to lyrical music, but that's kind of one of my gateways into that repeated focus listening that then again, it's almost like you get the pleasure of thinking you're in one room and then there's a curtain and all of a sudden it opens and you realize, oh, the room's even much larger and has just as many or more elements that you're going to be impressed by or stoked by as what you were originally thinking was just in the smaller dimension room. Yeah, that's I can kind of relate to that because there's especially with the phrase, uh, using phrases as the trigger. That definitely happens with me, but as well, the I guess the emotionality of, of whatever piece and or lack thereof that first hooks me in along with perhaps a, a line or a, a few lines. The worst is when one of those things happens and someone like me 20, 30 years later finds out that the line that hooked me in <laughs> is not actually what they're saying. <laughs> oh so. yeah. No, there, there's a magic to that too though. But um, yeah. you know, a, a funny example that I always have of that is my mom thought the song These Eyes by the Guess Who was Levi's. Oh my jeans. god. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That's good. And I can see your mom too. That's awesome. I know she is. <laughs> uh, all right. So that was a fun diversion. So what was the other thing you got? And I'll yeah, for throw sure. my thing in. Yeah. So um, the next thing that I'll kind of talk about is also related to a live concert event. Uh, Seven Seconds came through uh, recently, um, and our friend and a friend of the show, Chris Sherry, were able to hang out together for the first time in many years at the show because he was touring with Seven Seconds. That was a great evening. Uh, obviously, he was super radiant and positive as both you would expect him to be knowing him but then also because we were at a seven second show it's hard <laughs> yeah, for there not is... <laughs> to be that type of posy energy Hyper in the room. yeah exactly yeah. um and i also really love the fact that it was uh, i think within a week of when you had uh spent time with him when you guys shared um the panel at the uh, fugazi live film at gilman so not only did we get the chance brian or uh, Chris and I to talk, but we also were talking about how great it is that you and he had also spent time together um, because, you know, the three of us have spent a lot of time together in the past. Oh, um, so uh, seven seconds were great. I really like that their song selection as they do more and more tours has started to expand even into some of the deeper melodic 
yeah, you know, yeah. territory. Um, although, to get into some praise or satyagraha stuff, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I, <laughs> I haven't heard the song praise itself live yet. And, <laughs> and I'm always, you know, in the back of my mind, hoping they'll go there. But um, yeah, they definitely do, you know, a lot of new wind stuff in satyagraha. And, um, and then also even some of the, you know, later era, you mm. know, 2000s era um, records have, some stuff that leans back after a period of time where they were really more focused on like the classic hardcore sound. But anyway, so Chris introduced but, me. Go oh, sorry. You know, I've, I've talked to him a couple of times at other shows other than seven seconds recently and through Chris also through Chris Sherry, Kevin, but I should have asked him, I was going to say, you should have asked him. And then I'm like, I should ask him <laughs> put on the damn eye makeup, man. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. You've got the Willie Nelson thing going, but give the kids the eye makeup. It'll add to the <laughs> effect. Or give or, the old or, guys the, uh, not the kids, because it's not kids anymore. <laughs> it's more like if the elders are united. Yeah, I know. It's like Clinch Fliss, Black Eyes has a meaning, right? Right. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Sorry, but go ahead. Yeah, no, no. Uh, that reminds me of kind of like how he might look if he did it, but then also had a hoodie with a sleeveless t-shirt over yeah, top of it yeah yeah you know, that, that was be, one of his classic looks if he came out like that man i would <laughs> i would be, be so there <laughs> yeah. um okay yeah so uh what i really wanted to talk about uh about the show is that chris introduced me uh to a young man whose name is griffin uh and griffin is the son of uh friends of chris's uh and chris and griffin and i had a really lovely conversation Griffin is in that kind of post high school, early college portion of his life where he's still uh, very animated and inspired by things that he is passionate about. He's following some intuition and uh, a striving for creativity, but he's also kind of clear about the things he doesn't necessarily want to do. Um, but anyway, he wanted to teach himself how to play instruments and to start a band. And this all kind of germinated during the pandemic. And so he has a demo uh, out that's called Art School uh, is the name of the project. And it's called Right Off of Work. Um, they're available on Bandcamp if you want to check it out. I really like the idea that um, when you're in a room with a band like Seven Seconds, who've been doing it for so long, and you know we ourselves have... Um, in our amongst friends that have been doing it for so long that there was someone youthful that was at a much earlier phase, both with their passion towards music, but then also their um, approach to trying to make music. And so art school is awesome. It's a, it's a five song demo and it really clearly is the manifestation of like a early youthful homemade energy. You can hear uh, some of the reference points of things that he really loves, like the jam or wire or stiff little fingers. Um, but it also does have a, a certain current element to it um, and also a particular uh, reflection of his personality. And uh, it, it's obviously not for someone who's interested in precision. Um, and I think <laughs> that comment it fits very well within the On context of, of the record <laughs> that we're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That That's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about the project art school. Um, mm. But it definitely is passionate and exciting. And the last song on it is called Fluorescent Lights. And I actually think it has the seed of a truly classic teenage anthem. 
and and it made me think not necessarily in terms of sound or style but just the way that like um the undertones teenage kicks conveys something and how whatever that energy was ended up many 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 years later i guess you know what 40 years later mm-hmm. being a a mural on a wall in belfast and you know if you're familiar with belfast northern ireland there is a lot of uh, sectarian and paramilitary murals peppered throughout to define which block or which neighborhood uh, is aligned in what way. And it was really cool that for a period of time, there was just a a graffiti that was really ornate that said, I need teenage kicks. And Mm -hmm. it it embodied kind of that spirit of, you know, we can do something positive and and utilize the tools that are used to separate and uh, segregate uh, to actually convey something that's universal. And I feel like the sounds and the feeling that uh, Griffin's putting into that song, um, Fluorescent Lights, has that spirit. So he was basically saying that he, he wants to start playing live with the project. Um, a lot of it was done with some of his friends, um, but also some of it was done just by himself. And I think in Richmond, there are some shows coming up. So um, if you're interested in hearing youthful uh, on you know entrance into uh, music and creativity, go for it. Yeah, that, that sounds interesting. I looked it up while you were uh, talking about it. And before you said that he he actually made it a full band, I was looking at the band, the release photo, and I was like, is that him like superimposed on guitar, bass, drums? And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that would have been good. But, totally. Uh, no, and I like the song titles. They're pretty creative, so I'm intrigued. I'll definitely check it out. Okay, so tell me what's been stoking you. Well, I got to be honest, I've, this is the second episode and not of order. So I, I won't say who my co-host on the next episode is because it's a surprise, but I recorded that one previous to us talking. So I kind of kind of shot my load earlier in the week, uh, as they say, with inspirations. But there is one thing I'll mention. I ordered it and haven't received it yet. I tend to kind of have my own little rules about these things. And and this one was one that Jeff kind of uh, had for himself and hit me too when we were doing the show about not really wanting to talk about a record until I physically have it in my hand, not just the digital version. But having said that, I ordered the, <laughs> the record and don't have it in my hands. But as a shortage of things to talk about, I am going to talk about it because I have been listening to the digital because I was excited about hearing it. Uh, so one of my favorite modern guitarists is Bill Orcutt. He plays, whew, I don't even know how to condense it, but like I've said on the show before, he's he reminds me of like a Cubist punk schooled musician that plays uh, guitar like Thelonious Monk played piano, but in his own way, his own expression thereof, not like he's trying to sound like uh, Thelonious Monk, because it's not. But he's one of the most original sounding guitarists I've heard in a long time. And it it can be very scronky. It can be noisy. It can be surprising and jarring at times, but it also can be really beautiful and melodic at others. I mean, I loved this minimalist piece he had last year put out an album called Music for Four Guitars, where he played all you know four different guitar parts uh for every song and it, it was very layered like a steve reich or philip glass style thing 
and he's toured with that. And there's a, a really good Tiny Desk concert version thereof with some amazing guitarists joining him playing those songs. But he also, just in the last, what, six months, year, put out an album called Jump On It, which is his first return for many years to uh, acoustic-based playing, and it's just him on that one. And if you don't want to get into the scronky territory but want to hear some really interesting and music you could have on in the background uh, without being upset and kind of want something that extends what John Fahey was doing and takes it in a different direction but has some of that lineage, the Jump On It record's really good that way. Which brings me to the one I did want to talk about today, the most recent, or one of two most recent records he put out called The Flower School. And that's with a saxophonist, Zoe Amba, which I might be mispronouncing, but she is the up-and-coming New York saxophonist Definitely in the 60s, 70s, fire music, free jazz school of sax, but she she has her own voice. And amazingly, especially in jazz terms, she's incredibly young for jazz musicians. She's in her early 20s and is already making a mark. I've got one of her records with Daniel Carter that's really good. But anyway, this is Bill Orcutt with her and percussionist Chris Corsano. Chris Corsano is a great musician in his own right. He's done a couple of different, uh, at least a couple, if not a few different records with Bill Orcutt. He's played with everyone from Bjork to uh, Kim Gordon to, you know, Nels Klein, Jim O'Rourke, Jandek, <laughs> every possible weirdo you could think of. Oh, and I love what he does with, uh, he has a project called Rangda with Richard Bishop from Sun City Girls and uh, Ben Chasney from Six Organs of Admittance. But that, those records are great. But anyway, the newest uh, record with Bill Orcutt, Zoa Ambra, and Chris Corsano is called Flower School. And it's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's not just a, uh, it's not just a noise fest. It's not just them blowing or making as much racket as they can, although there's moments of that there's a natural flow and a natural kind of a psychic conversation that you always yearn for when you listen to, I mean, I always yearn for, especially with jazz, but, and I wouldn't call this strictly jazz, but with any music where you really want to inhabit the actual instruments and hear how they interact in ways that sound honest and sound like they really are listening to each other. So this album runs the gamut. There's some beautiful moments where Zoe plays with Bill uh, on guitar, like acoustic and electric, that's really kind of shimmering and refracted. And there's other moments that, you know, build up steam. Chris Corsano, when he, you know, his style has a lot of muscle, but also a lot of heart to it. So it's a great mixture. Like, I hope this lineup does more records than just this one. And yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily any way related to Discord other than the fact that if you're into Discord, you're into aggressive-ish music that's got heart, that's got soul, that's exploratory. And if you want to check out some jazz-ish stuff that's in that vein, this is a good place to go to. That sounds awesome. I I think one of the things that you're pointing to that definitely is related to a, a lot of whether it's the recorded music or the live music 
around this community was the desire and therefore the belief that it's possible um, to achieve a form of uh, the aesthetic. Yes. And I actually wanted to use that word, but I feel like, oh, no, I know I did uh, on the ne <laughs> on the <laughs> next episode. I keep feeling like the last episode, but it's the next episode. There's a band that that's part of their description of themselves. And it's it's, yeah. it's true. But yeah, there is that in this for sure. Well, and, and you know, um, I, I think that it's I, I like that you're alluding to this particular musician's ability to um, pursue that not always within the singular context of whether it's electric or acoustic and not always within the same combination of other elements or players. Mm -hmm. um, some, some of the description made me think of the recent episode you had with Shudder to Think where Nathan Larson was talking about how Mark Rebo was such an influence on his brain. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that, that idea that. of like, yeah, for sure. And that idea of that kind of like cubist deconstructed approach to guitar Mm -hmm. um, especially because Swizz had been so kind of inspired by a different type of guitar approach. Yeah, yeah. And even though he was the bassist in that band, you know, to hear that he was as a player really influenced by something that I had not made the connection of previously. But when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, I totally get You're that. like, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's so cool. Um, and then the other thing it made me think of really fast is that there's a, a Lee Ronaldo acoustic record that he made at home called In Virus Times during the pandemic. Mm. And it's that kind of ambient acoustic, Fahey influenced, you know, percussive and expressive guitar playing that I, I thought was really uh, effective as I do find a lot of his work you know, both in the band and then the collaborative context. Oh, wow. I need to hear that. Cause I, I've liked some of the stuff I've heard of his outside of Sonic Youth and some stuff doesn't do it for me. So that's cool. That sounds, uh, that sounds really good. Anyhow. All right. Well, that was all I've got for my, my side of things. So why don't we get into the band at hand, uh, talk about Suture. Who the hell are they? What did they do? Why? And I love to offload the history side of these things to others always. But since I didn't tell you that this time, I didn't give you any kind of heads up. I think it's on me. And you've got some uh, personal thoughts on the matter and, and connections that you've made that'll fit in with this, I believe. But I'll, I can just give a quick little rundown of what their story is. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really curious to hear what you've been able to find. And I'm, I think that the conversation will give a lot of uh, perspective or context into what we're going to talk about. Yeah, well, so the, the thing of most interest to someone like yourself and me of this band is that Doug Birdzell is in this band with Kathleen Hanna. And that combination alone is just mind-blowing and intriguing <laughs> that he doesn't play bass at all uh, well, that's a whole other issue but well, also yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the obvious thing to point out is that <laughs> it, it, it's a band unlike many of his others although not all of his others is really um, his aesthetic and his bass playing are anchors within things that he's done and i love that not only does he not play bass, but it doesn't even really sound like the musical expressiveness that he has done in the past. Yeah, there's nothing on this record that, or the other songs they've released that would 
point to oh yeah that's how that's something doug would do not <laughs> nothing on here but anyhow uh the other member we haven't mentioned yet is sharon cheslau who was one of the authors of band in dc right yeah and um, she was in chalk circle yeah she was in chalk circle she did some time in, in bloody mannequin orchestra and some other just uh, short-lived things other than this short-lived thing, Suture. <laughs> but apparently, Suture were formed in the summer of 91 while Hannah was in D.C. with, with Bikini Kill and Kathy Wilcox was on vacation in Europe. So the connection between Cheslow and uh, Hannah it seems to be that Sharon had moved to San Francisco in 1990 when she had met Kathleen during Bikini Kill's spring tour with Nation Ulysses, of all people. And while Cheslau and Hannah were both living in D.C. during the summer of 91, they decided to do this uh, project while they both had some time on their hands. And it seems like that was a common thing. There's, uh, especially around the embassy houses and all the other living accommodations, but the little camps of the kingdoms serfdoms if you will of uh <laughs> the musical land at the time uh there was a, a lot of interbreeding going on both literally and uh musically <laughs> so uh anyhow somehow they i don't know how doug got involved with them but i mean doug was involved with everything at that point he was in the positive force house he had been in obviously been in fidelity and Beefeater, and you know it was a, a big part of the scene so I guess also for a brief moment, Jennifer Ballard and Molly Newman from Bratmobile was in Suture, but I don't believe on any recordings. And oh yeah, what I found as well is that yes, the embassy house is where they practiced at. There's the uh somewhat I was gonna say infamous. There there was a there was that kind of uh, notorious cassette, the embassy tapes that got released that comp i don't know do you have that ken by the way yeah yeah i do i do and there, there's actually a kathleen hannah tim green i know yeah, wonder that's what that. i was going to mention yeah. the wonder twins yeah yeah that has all kinds of combinations of uh people either living at the embassy house or just coming by to visit and hey why don't we record a song while you're over here type of thing but so the this lineup the core three of of kathleen hannah sharon cheslow and and Doug Birdzell performed as Sutra on quote-unquote girl night at the International Pop Underground Convention in Olympia in 91. And while there, they put out a comp cassette called A Wonderful Treat, which also had a couple other Bikini Kill side projects on there. Wonder Twins, which we just mentioned being one of them. And just, you know, they were, all, they were jazzed on the energy that was going around both on the expression just of youth, but also of women expressing themselves in very honest and non-rockist type of ways. And so, you know, they were just kind of high on the times and they were already in doing other projects, but hey, why not do this one too, <laughs> it seems like. But, uh, you know, we'll get into it, but this was recorded at WGNS by half of the Vile Cherubs. And while I was uh, researching this, I kind of got sidelined into checking out what Sharon Cheslau had been doing over time. And and that was a, a fun little rabbit hole I got into because I just didn't know much of her history. And she had grown up, I mean, and 
that that she she wasn't just she's not just a musician, but she's done a lot of stuff in the art world. She's a writer, photographer, archivist, like everyone in DC is an archivist. But you know, <laughs> she's uh, very into her her Jewish heritage, and she interviewed her mother for Interrobang anthology, uh, which is interesting because she wrote about her great grandmother also immigrating from Ukraine. Uh, had a, a violinist father, professional violinist father, not just violin. And without going into all the details, you know, her family moved to DC in '67 after her father got a job with the Department of Transportation, which makes sense. That's kind of why anyone was in DC because her parents worked for the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it made me want to go back to Chalk Circle and check them out again too, because I've only ever really listened to actively the stuff on. Makes nuts don't crack. No, on uh, which I barely heard that on bouncing babies, because I guess she self-proclaimed that her influences even back then was like the Beatles, Yoko, Patti Smith, but also the Slits, Teenage Jesus, and jazz. You know, that's super advanced taste for what everyone else when they were in their early teens were listening to in DC. You know, it wasn't UK punk and it wasn't. Ted Nugent. Well, it's also interesting that you mentioned her father's a violinist because I think not just on the release that we're listening to, but um, in the earlier bands that I'm aware of, single note playing and the interface of single note uh, melodic lines as opposed to like heavy chords are kind of features in chalk circle, whereas two guitars inter- interplaying that way. Or like here where there's a bass and a guitar that intertwine it with a lot of single note work, especially on the um, B-side, the last song that we'll talk about. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. And I'm not sure if you knew this. Her first fanzine was called If This Goes On. And it was, it was done with Colin Sears in 82 and 83. And she said, my main goal was to write about music from a female perspective. And that included writing about the fact that female musicians weren't taken seriously. In 82 and 83 in DC, that definitely checks out. She, she's she got a very Zilla style uh, life and that, you know, she walked into all these different scenes at the right time. She was in San Francisco. She was in Olympia. She was in DC. She was in later years, you know, she, with, with her uh, interrobang publication you know she would touch on or talk to or have interviews or writings by people you know like 50 foot hose pauline oliveris uh uh oxbow you know uh, really stretching out the uh, as well as ian, ian mckay and people like that but really stretching out and exploring everything to do with environments and sounds and also doing literal uh art and videography you know it's she, i don't know i just found her really fascinating and i didn't know much about sharon Cheslau other than her name from chalk circle and from the band in dc book yeah you know I, some of the things you found out about i think are pointing in the direction of what makes this release um very interesting in a a, a piece of its time one of the things that uh, clearly was happening uh, was there was a cross-pollinization that was between uh, coastal activities, and it wasn't limited to it, but in this particular construction, D.C. to San Francisco, um, some of that was related to maximum rock and roll and, you know, similar to 
our personal histories where we both ended up in San Francisco for a period of time. You know, Cynthia Conley was there, Chris Ball was there, uh, Sharon for a period. And in fact, the record is released as a joint release between Decomposition, which is Sharon's record label at the time, and Mm -hmm. Discord. So it has that, it is the reflection of the energies of uh, creative people as they're traveling. And and in particular, that D.C. to San Francisco or East Coast to San Francisco, you know, has a a longer tradition than even within the punk examples that I just gave, you know, whether it's the beats or going back even earlier to something like the gold rush. There's a way in which there's been an energy that has inspired people to pull a thread from one place to another. And San Francisco seems to be one of the places that people would go to pull the thread through. Um, and then maybe back down again. You know, you're a good example of that, having both been there and then left and then been back there again. And and I like that, that the record is a reflection of a time when it seemed like that particular axis was something that was active and happening, just as the um, Olympia uh, in D.C. was, because Kathleen, whose uh, personal story, I think I understand, involved some time in the D.C. area. Uh, and mm-hmm. then going uh, out to, uh, west uh, to Washington State and then coming back in this era. So um, I like that. And I think it shares with not just what we were talking about in terms of like the embassy house and other um, of that particular early 91, 92 era spirit, but there's been a tradition within DC of what, what you could almost call like projects or or joke bands, or fake mm-hmm. bands, concept bands that people just would c- combine in different ways and make. I mean, Black Light Panthers, or and not necessarily, snakes. yeah, not meant to. And it almost, in the say for someone like the Snakes, almost killed the whole thing to even do it live. But it wasn't about, and most of those bands never played a show. Yeah, no, and and, that, and I think that's exactly the you know an, another thing that I wanted to point out about the record. But but before jumping there, I did want to say that it reminds me also as well of another project that has that cross pollinization element to it, and that was called My New Boyfriend, which was Jenny Toomey uh, and Toby Vale and um, Aaron Stouffer from Seaweed did a band when I think Jenny was out on the West Coast or something like that, and so there was this kind of idea that we all want to spend time together because we're friends or we're socially connected. We're also politically connected. We're also creatively or artistically connected. So if we're together, let's actually do something creative. And I really like that this is a um, an example or an artifact that is basically imbued with that spirit, especially because the community that was very dynamic and happening at this particular moment in the summer of 91 is if not already, it's very soon to come face to face with a much more commercial and encroaching uh, careerism that is not present on this record or in, in some of the other examples that we were just talking about. Yeah, yeah, that makes me think of a number of things. Which uh, I'm trying to debate if I should if to bring up now or wait till we drop the needle, but. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, especially what that last part, too, about the encroachment of, oh, we can make a living of this, but also, you know, professionalism, quote unquote, and the debate about reaching more people versus keeping it small. But also, uh, this whole moment is defined by this kind of 
I would say, willfully amateurist expression. The messier, the more fingerprints on the artwork, the better type of vibe. And how do you, how does that grow? How does that stay? How do you maintain that spirit without it having a shelf life, you know, whether through maturity or through maturity and or meaning, like you said, the encroachment of the potential for money or having to face, uh, you know, I don't know, people can only not know how to play their instruments for so long for one thing and two, uh, I don't know. There's not many people that are successfully like a band like Half Japanese that can build a whole career and stay true to themselves over decades while still sounding like they just discovered that instrument in the corner and had a ton of energy to just, you know, start hitting it and singing like a kid who who uh, just had a bunch of sugar. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, that, that raises an interesting um, observation, which is that basically if there really is, and, you know, if, if we're right in thinking that a part of the animating spirit was just let's do something as an end in and of itself, which is not just a philosophical disposition with respect to what we were talking as the encroachment of careerism or professionalism, but it's also a different philosophy than the idea that the record is a flyer for the show. Like, you know, there's the, the, that's a Minutemanism that was kind no, of like yeah. this idea that you... And the um, Fugazi, the menu versus the meal. Kind of exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and it seems to me that by doing these sessions, which were not done in the basement, they were they went to WGNS, yeah. which was another basement. Um, <laughs> True. But, but, but nonetheless, it was but a, a studio. A, a studio. <laughs> Well, and, and partly because in at this era, I think, you know, Senator Flux was probably recording their fourth album. So I think there was there, there's something of the idea that the session and even putting it out is an end in and of itself. It's not a means to another end. And I don't know if there were ambitions to play live or to travel or to tour, but it seems like a lot of the examples that we've talked about were more the idea that just because something isn't quote unquote your serious band or your real band, like any of these concepts of hierarchy within creativity, that really, if we've done something together, the fact that we just did it is merit enough to do something with it. And that is not because we want then something else to follow from it. It's more just that we believe enough in what we did that that was it and i think what's interesting about some of that what you know maybe gets shortly thereafter referred to as indie i think a lot of that um animating spirit was a part of what was happening and and even specifically around dc at the time and not just with the embassy house but you know simple machines and teen beat as other examples the momentum or that animating spirit gets challenged because actually it starts to build. And so what do you do in response to something that actually does start to build, whether in the example that you gave is because someone becomes more proficient in their instruments or it starts to build because others are really interested and actually have to press a second version of the seven inch because the first pressing sold out. I'm not saying that happened with this seven inch, but just <laughs> as an example of the ways in which 
even what you think you're doing can sometimes be challenged, but it's very clear to me that at this moment in time, this like handmade, homespun, small, not gloss, you know, in in in, in particular, you know, not uh, reiterating rockism, male energy dominant, you know, postures or poses. It's very clear that's what was intended within these recordings. And I like that it exists in the way that it does. And that I also see some of the ways that it is referring to some of the very things that the things that were intentionally careerist or or, or that got successful were drawing from this the same well. Um, you know, one could argue yeah. that a, a band like Nirvana didn't want to be as successful as they were, even though they were ambitious or careerist. And uh, even even that momentum <laughs> got got out of hand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think Kurt doth protest too uh too much about his own ambitions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and the one thing I the other thing is that I, you know, it, it, on the graphics of the record, uh oh, on wait, the back. Wait. Oh go okay. ahead. Sorry. No, well if this is just a, a quick thing to reference. Yeah, point, yeah, yeah. Because we're yeah, going to yeah, talk yeah, about yeah, the graph. No, yeah, yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah, yeah. So um on the on the back of the record there's a statement that says trust your intuition. And I feel like that is the animating spirit of the mm -hmm. record. Mm -hmm. It's it's not trust your proficiency or trust your ambition. It's trust your intuition. And the intuition of these people yeah. is like, let's get together and do this. I like that idea, though I might have a different motto that, that was the opposite of trust your intuition <laughs> in regards to this record. But... <laughs> ignore your intuition. <laughs> Please ignore it. No. But... Oh, so I, I, I see that we're going to have slightly differing uh, takes on it. Yeah, um, no, that's great. And anything else before we, we uh, jump into this thing? Well, so I, I do want to kind of talk a little bit more around the context of what I, I think was kind of happening. And one of them that I think is that, you know, WGNS had at that point moved to uh, the basement of a home. Had it scaled up yet? Yeah, I, I think so. It had moved to a home that was in Arlington just um, by 66, like off of oh, Blue yeah, Road. Yeah. yeah, that's the one where they lived above the floor, like a bunch of people lived on the different floors and they had the studio in the basement, right? Yeah, and I think that Grey Matter double seven inch was the first or one of the first things they recorded when they moved it to that place, which again, I think a lot of the equipment was funded because of Senator Flux um signing to a yeah. uh, Imago and you know, kind of maturing up that process. And so uh Jeff and Charles had built the studio, but what's interesting is that they didn't record this. You know, this is Jesse and Seth, I know. like you said. From from the vile show. That's fascinating that they don't have a, at least not in the credits, don't have a finger on it. Well, and and also because Sharon had been a bandmate of Charles's, and I think that's mm. that's interesting as well, like in BMO. Yeah. And I think that um, because um, obviously we, you and I, reference the vile cherubs as like the the band that these guys were in, but at this point Seth was in Circus Lupus. And, you know, Circus Lupus was a different beast than the Vile Cherubs. And even Nation of Ulysses that Tim was in at the time was a different beast than Vile Cherubs. But there's something about the spirit of the Vile Cherubs aesthetic that fits more with this recording than the other two bands that we were just talking about. Or that even something like Bikini Kill or, you know, Rain Like the Sound of Trains, which Doug does shortly after this, um, or Fidelity Jones that he did before this. 
So I, I think that um, the fact that it was recorded at GNS is, is interesting because there's a primitivism to this that is in some ways the antimony to what Senator Flux was doing with the same equipment at the same time or approximately the same time because that fourth album that they made um, at GNS is a much, much more polished, crisp, clean, professional sounding record. And I, I like that. Um, you can hear a spectrum of possibilities, which um, would also have been the case um, at Inner Ear at the time, but the primitivism and the kind of spirit uh, here is more in line with kind of what was happening at Pirate House, actually, on those recordings or at Embassy or whatever. No, it's true. I, th I think we should just get into it because I, I feel like just in, to tag on to that, the only, my only thought is that I bet these were recordings and maybe even songwriting if if they spent much time on that it the recordings were probably as fun to do or probably more fun to do than to actually potentially listen to afterward <laughs> <laughs> like i could see all of them hanging out and uh really having a blast with the the process and obviously it, it's only credited as being recorded and mixed and everything in one session. So they obviously didn't spend too much time sweating or tinkering over this. I think that's the 30,000 foot view. But I think as we kind of go into some of the songs, there is a, a bit of deliberate layering that is potentially at odds with the concept of this just being a um, band in a room, press record and they play. And so I, I definitely think there's a primitivism and a, hey, let's rotate instruments and let's just do this as a creative activity together. But there's something in the recordings that alludes to or actually reflects some intentionality beyond just that primitivism um, that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. Yeah, I, I need a hit of whatever you're on to to get yeah. this. <laughs> no, well, and yeah, no, for sure. Um, well, and you know, but but at the same time, I think that certainly it it suggests that um, there was such a I don't know what the right word is. It's not frenzy, but there was such an um, urgency. Conveyance, yeah, conveyance or urgency that these types of artifacts or recordings could sometimes be uh, the result of like a week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, but not years and years and years. And I like the idea that we have something many, many years later that has, uh, as an artifact, has lasted, but that was originally created with a super flash of excitement or enthusiasm or, or rush. It benefits um, in many ways from that, um, I think as time goes on, it benefits in many ways from uh, that tension between something that was made just for a moment by people that were just at a room versus us so many years later talking about it and trying to contextualize it within what was happening. Fair enough. All right, let's do it. Let's put the needle onto this scratchy thing.
Okay, side one starts with good girl, right? It does. And and more than even the expression of good girl, it starts with guitar feedback note that kind of bleeds that into the bends song. into the yeah. yeah. That's that's my favorite part of this whole song. And that's about the only part of this whole song that I like. <laughs> um, well, so I, I I really like the fact that that is the kind of like uh, oozing entrance into the song and that that part then gets repeated by what sounds like another guitar mm-hmm. tracking it. Later, yeah. Um, well, I mean, even in the, the first instance, it does the note once uh-huh. and it's still sustaining, I believe. And then another guitar does the same exact thing as the bass and drums come in together. So mm. it's either the same guitar that does the note twice or or the bend in twice with the, the kind of droning feedback or it's two tracks. But in any case, you know, as that uh, bass and drums come in, the song kind of essentially uh, establishes that primitive garage vibe to it um but what's I think, interesting i think i ahead. think primitive and garages are generous terms for it but yeah yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> well uh, for the rest of this episode we'll refer to me as the the generous one um, <laughs> but what's really cool is that 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 verse and the song itself doesn't uh, essentially tie itself to formal structure because it doesn't do a simple repetition of like three or four parts or notes. It does a first line and then it deviates from that line. Then do you it, think that's then, on purpose? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, 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 it, to me, it, it sounds like it's drifting because they don't have one. Doug doesn't know how to play drums and two Sharon's guitar playing and tuning is nebulous at best. So it sounds sloppy to the point no. of but but the point of uh beyond redemption because there's plenty other spots on this full record where they can play together if they really want to and really put their mind to it but it yeah it just i i just have a problem especially with this song like overall it's just <laughs> i like the retro just super gore girls style primitivism like you said of the kind of garagey like raw barely one chord or two chord type of vibe but uh it just yeah i mean it seems like doug gives up on drums like a couple times like uh i'm gonna stop for a second just hit the hi-hat for until i can find where to start again well uh, you know let, let me try to continue a defense of the structure <laughs> of the song and, and then we so can called in, structure. Yeah, and, and then we can get into the performance aspect of the uh-huh. of the thing. I, I I do not think it's an accident. I I think it intentionally uh, has a four note uh, ascending pattern that, in a simple song construction, you would repeat that same thing, you know, two times without vocals, four times with vocals, then you would go to a pre-chorus or a chorus or something. But it does a four note ascension and then switches to higher strings and does a descending pattern. So right away, the fact that they didn't just repeat the four measures of the verse, line one, musically, says to me that there's some 
awareness of dynamic, whether it's melodic or um, or actual volume, because when you go to the higher strings, it's not as loud. I think that that is not simply the result of the amateurism of people maybe not knowing their own instruments. I think it really is an, an awareness of how to structure a song within a primitive garage idiom, but that is not um, simplistic. Like there, I think there's a little more sophistication there that I'm I'm hearing. Mm. I I, th I definitely think there's a attempt at that. Uh, I do, and I do like the higher note part because that part reminds me of like a preschool Sonic Youth style thing. Like that part's kind of cool, but the whole main yeah. the whole main singing and the whole main verse just really rubs me wrong. And then the chorus, especially. The music is all right, I guess, but just I know it's ha maybe half on purpose and ironic, but it's so inane sounding to me. It, <laughs> like at its worst moments, this whole record, there's moments that aren't, but the things that really don't work for me, the sound I think potentially consciously sounds like uh, what maybe a 14-year-old band would sound like like a band of 14-year-olds, but it sounds like 24-year-olds trying to play like they were 14 years old. Well, yeah, I, I, I will pick up on one part of that, but I don't, just because I'm willing to follow that thread doesn't mean I'm I'm going to give up on making some cases for why this is a, no, a, I think, a, a, I think a better song. You're, you're eroding <laughs> your sandcastle of no, conviction no, no. here. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, um, I, I, if if there's one fault I have, or it's not a fault, if if there's one thing I've noticed, and it's not exclusive to Kathleen Hanna, but I think it's evident in her vocal performance here, she's a great interpreter of persona, and she's dramatic. She's 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 a dramatic singer that, in a way that sometimes leads one to think, is this character or is this sincere? And I think that the fact that one might even ask that question could be viewed as, well, that's the wrong question anyway, because clearly that's kind of the nation of Ulysses uh, mm -hmm. conflict, which sure. is like, yeah. are they sincere? Or is it persona? Um, mm -hmm. But I, I find that whether it's the overall prunivism, especially because, you know, one of the members and uh, we know is capable of much more and the other two, um, you know, I, again, I think that even in Chalk Circle, there's a, a much greater sophistication than what's oh, present yeah, here. Definitely. Um, but uh, but I think that that just not that sonic persona, but her vocal delivery at various points within the song almost sounds like a different perspective or different person singing the same thought. And and that's present within in a few ways. Just like I was making the case for the verse structure itself not being standard the way that each line is vocally delivered is not clearly or even repetitively the same and there are times when i think that that's really effective and i think sometimes it is a little cloying or confusing especially like that last um mm -hmm. you know when the floor tom chorus where the repeat of the phrase she's a good girl there's or one moment yeah yeah. But the trill that she puts in her voice. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's just that's that's a dramatic uh, device. You know, it's 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 no different than the way an actor might deliver a line. And I think that that can be distracting 
or one can find it really impressive at how she can embody different voices all within a song. Because if you know the way that I'm talking, it's an atypical construction, and that's true within the first verse. Then there's a pre-chorus, which is the note from the beginning comes again. Then you get the floor tom. Then you get another verse that doesn't follow the pattern of the first verse. So not only is the first verse deviant mm -hmm. from a standard, like we'll repeat this part four times, the second time the verse comes through, it doesn't mirror the structure of the it, first verse. It adds a couple of notes. Yeah, and and even on the vocals, the way in which line one is sung different than line two, which is different than three or line four, is not the same deviation that happens in the first verse. So you all think of, that's all, on purpose? I do. Yeah. Or or if 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 it's not on purpose, there's a will to allow it to happen that is consistent with their aesthetic approach to the record. They're choosing to allow it to take that form. And and what I think is even proof of that that what I'm referring to as a sophistication which in some ways could be construed as ironic within the release, but mm -hmm. um when you get to the middle eight or the guitar break, the guitar solo, then the guitar tone totally changes. Mm -hmm. And it really does have that like semi-hollow bodied, vile chair of 60s feel to it. And that moment when it shifts back to the uh, verse, Kathleen leads the verse with a really loud yelling expression of a line. And that's yeah. where she's kind of like her most... Kathleen a bikini killish yeah within yeah, the, the, the song it um, actually kind of sounds yeah go ahead yeah well yeah <laughs> and, and, and so and so like I, I've been talking about how one of the things I like about the record I think we mentioned earlier was how this doesn't have like Doug's thumbprint on it and and mm -hmm. I mean that literally with his thumb on the slap bass on the <laughs> yeah yeah uh, and, but, well uh, much less the uh bass drum either yeah no for sure <laughs> <laughs> Kick for right. And in moments, it really does remind me of some of Chalk Circle and does remind me some of Bikini Kill, which I think is is kind of interesting that while mm -hmm. the impulse may have been, let's do what the three of us do together, in some ways, at moments, it ends up being they something. They can't help. Yeah. Exactly. But be who they are. And then I think that's even conveyed in, like I say, that guitar break or the middle section where the, you know, the producers being half of the vile cherubs how that vibe felt like the vile cherubs to me when that guitar break happens so i think there's an actual emotional arc to the song and i think that it's uh, creatively structured and not just a repetitive mechanism to convey a verse a chorus a break a verse a chorus because of the way that the vocals change in each of them the way the actual chord progression changes within each of them but I do find a little bit of challenge with really, it, it's clear what the song is about and what the feeling that it's being conveyed. But because there are such, or there's such a plurality of vocal deliveries, I start to feel a little bit like I've lost where the real heart or who's the real heart of the song. Yeah. It, it, I don't know. It's It's a ghost of a song to me. And yeah, that's helpful to hear your your perspective helps uh, flesh it out a little. And I agree with most of uh, your sentiments, but I just I, I tend to see the kind of sub subversion they're they're doing of their natural styles to go against them, the ability of uh, 
something productive to come out of it on this song especially and in the dramatic element of her vocals like you said when it's not working it and even in the to some degree a lot of the lyrics it just to me it feels very i wouldn't say forced but it, it just it feels like something she would write in five seconds like she could write a hundred songs better than this lyrically and, and even probably vocally uh at this point already but it sounds the the lyrics and the way she's even singing it feels a bit uh self-consciously trying to do something different but not taking the time to invest it with enough energy to make it you know uh resonant and i yeah with the structure i i'll give you that i could see that and it just that also makes me wonder and yeah i like our ident- dynamic already uh I'm happy to inhabit the bad cop on this episode, like <laughs> with with you being so uh, kind yeah. and, and you're taking in of this record. Like it allows me to let you take all the light, and I'll, I'll just be the darkness on it. Uh, because I agree. I mean, there's like I said, there's things I do like about parts of all of this, but at the same time, overall, it leaves me with a bad taste, and it makes me wonder this song since we're just talking about this song so far much less most of it like this song especially it's like did they just write it right before they recorded it even if they wrote all the different types of changes and just boom let's go and let's go let's do it right now did they write it much earlier and only do one take on purpose and say hey if we get it we get it and if we don't that's what's going to be released anyway well, yeah, or I mean, what, I, you know? yeah, one of the things that I find as evidence that there was some deliberate approach to how it's done, which doesn't necessarily contradict your um, point or question, is that there are multiple layers of instruments. It's not just the instruments as originally played in the room, um, because again, when yeah, the guitar middle section happens, the, the, the main guitar continues, but another guitar comes in. There's also um, dueling vocals that are overdubbed um, mm-hmm. or multiple layers of vocals. And so I I think that, um, and, and I think in other parts of the EP, there are other examples where that type of dynamic arrangement is something that was conscious and deliberate as opposed to just saying, um, okay, press record and we'll play. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't necessarily answer the question about, well, had they ever done it before or not? <laughs> <laughs> but it but it at least tells me that within the room, they were trying to do something more than just simply document what they sounded like in the room. Like there, there's sure. a care done to make, whether it was ever intended to be a seven inch or not, there was a care to make the recordings something more than a practice room boom box or, you know four mm-hmm. track whatever yeah yeah that's food for thought there it's true you know as, as a funny aside i did like the fact that the release is at least as it's displayed on the front cover suture with an exclamation point um, <laughs> because on one of your other podcasts we did an episode about them with an exclamation oh point. that's true <laughs> I, I like that overlap that's um, funny i so, do like i do like that that is uh, appealing i like the exclamation mark too sure. although i i hate the name because try typing in sutra and youtube and see what pops up 
Or yeah, I'd rather elsewhere. not. Elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, that, that it's, won't it's happen. scary. Um, I did want to say that, you know, the value of something is not always to be found through comparative or, or referential, like, oh, I hear this and that, or I hear that. And, but there is something of this moment that, while in a totally different way, uh, through a different filter, um, a band like Mud Honey is doing a similar loose, fuzzy, garagey, are we going to make it through the song? Are we falling apart or not? feel. And so some of what you might be responding to uh, negatively is not just because it feels like, oh, you guys are capable of more than what you've done here, mm -hmm. um, but also that there were other examples literally in that same time that uh, kind of walked into that, I don't know, walked into that room more successfully. Yeah. Well, I mean, Kathleen's other band, for example, at the time they weren't playing anything the least bit sophisticated but it was self-conscious but effective at the same time so yeah and i don't mean to just compare it to that because i just had to remind myself as listening to it that no actually you know as much as many things about this record i don't like i do really like some of the other things she's done although i will say for the record here on the record that well, it's not actually about the road, is that she flatly declined to do an interview about it and seems to disown any of her side projects and tries to actively uh, Stalinize the excavation thereof well, from yeah. what I've seen. I think that's interesting because, you know, earlier we were talking about how there's a kind of, there was a spirit present um, in many ways that said, we're going to do these things for the sake of just doing them because we're here and this is what we do and this will be fun. And also unconsciously, I think there's an awareness that the more we do this together, the more other things we're not even anticipating will come from it. You know, you could make an argument that a band like the Snakes or something is not as great as the Faith or Embrace or... Wait, wait, um, back up. I know. I, was, I said one <laughs> one might or could. One might. Not on this <laughs> but, show, buddy. Not, right, on... <laughs> not not on this day of time, my brother. Um, but uh, but uh, there is another way in which all of that is a exploration of creativity that then leads to the output that is deemed yeah. more serious oh, yeah. or not. Definitely. And, you know, and, and it raises the idea of like, hey, if an author didn't publish a manuscript um, when after they. Yeah. It, write it, the novel, the novel that they end yeah. up not releasing could they have gotten to the right. masterpiece that they re do at the last minute out of frustration or whatever yeah the the, the only difference here is that this really was released um yeah but i yeah exactly I, but I, but, that's part but again, of my argument yeah but i also feel that that in and of itself was a reflection of the time because the act of even releasing something that was so spontaneous or a a burst of something that was never intended to be more than what it was flew in the face of potentially those that were releasing records with the intention of it being a stepping stone to the next rung yeah, or yeah. To the, the hot the bigger venue or whatever there still really was and it, and it wasn't limited to 91 because I, in a way some of the entrenched disposition gets even more that way as the adversarial other side of the fence starts to encroach on the territory of the underground and so i feel like 
you know, th there was a spirit of we can just do these things and that is enough. And oh, yeah. by the way, our there's friends no like, pressure. This is just for us. Except yeah. we're releasing it. We're making a statement against capitalism with a capitalist gesture in a way. Or, or yeah, we're making again. That's the the um a slightly the different yeah or a different spectrum that I alluded to earlier. There, there's a way in which we're making something of its time and moment right now. This August in 1991, we did this for three weeks, and this is the record of it. And you can and get yet, it now on Discord I, Records. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for choosing this hardcore know, product. Yeah. Um, that uh, that it it also by virtue of putting it out, it has become something that someone could contextualize and listen to so much later. Um, and yeah. and I think and I I think that's a really interesting uh, dichotomy of of intentionality we and i think it mirrors what we do in in many ways you know we yeah. want every day to be immediate and to have its own identity and yet we also want it to be something that will inform us in the future because we can remember it um, well i mean i myself trying to be generous was like okay what if some old stuff like our old band or like the band at <laughs> high school band they called gumption got released yeah, onto yeah. seven inch right now I'd be a little embarrassed of some of it, but some of it I wouldn't. And the the stuff that I was embarrassed about or felt like, oh, that is a product of a teenage mind, I would as well be willing to be like, okay, well, that's great. Anyone's interested. And I'll tell you what I think about it. If you ask me, I'll tell you why I think it's not you know, as moving to me as something I'd make now or 10 years ago or 20, but you know, I'd be willing to have that discussion. It, that's the part that just rubs me a little weirdly with someone of the notoriety that Kathleen has now to not even be willing to engage or uh, acknowledge this certain uh, part of her development, you know? Well, yeah, I, I hear the point. And, and there could always be specifics that we don't know about, given yeah, that true. a lot of these things happened within social or That's personal true. context. Oh, yeah. But I would also argue another side, which is that that is a disposition that it's not surprising you would have as someone who is leading a archive and excavation of these historical periods and documents. Like you, you have a, a an interest in find inspiration from pursuing the very conversations in many times with the very people that did something a long time ago, whether they thought it was their greatest sophisticated work or their mm -hmm. least. Um, but there might be others, even artists, that would not have an interest in that exercise or activity because their disposition is inclined toward other things. Or maybe they just don't feel the inspiration of the culture in the way that they did when they were in D.C. in the summer of 91. You mm -hmm. know, who, who knows? But I think one of the great things about artifacts is that no matter what those uh, intentions were then or now, we have the opportunity to experience and uh, arrive at our own understandings by interfacing with the artifact. True. But I just want to be able to be like, Kathleen, why should I care about this record? Why? Please give me some context. <laughs> well, you know, and, and yet at the same time, I think that thoughtful openness toward art can answer that question without the artist. Um, I, I think you have within you 
the ability to both answer the question. And maybe the answer is, <laughs> I don't. Or, you, <laughs> you know, know, I, uh, yeah. And of course I'm taking, I'm taking more of a hard stance uh, than I normally would just for the sake of argument and for the sake of entertainment, maybe, but not really, for sure. just, just for the sake of really exploring these things. Cause I don't begrudge that this record could exist by any means or that it should even do I need to enjoy it? No. Does it have a right to exist? Of course it does. They could put out a record of every member like the descendants did for a second of every member <laughs> farting for 10 minutes straight. And it has as much right to come out as anything else. But having said that, let's get to the second song, uh, Falling. Sure. You know, I, I do want to say really fast, though, that I think that without in any way questioning the quote unquote legitimacy of such a record or whether it deserves to to have an episode about it or attention paid to it or or just anything to take it, you know, to, should one take something with greater focus and intensity than the focus and intensity with which it was made? You know, that's a question. But I, what, I think what, I, I want to know what Ian was thinking, too. I mean, not what he's think. not like, what the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> but like, what made him be like, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I dig this. Throw a Discord label on there. Well, because I, again, I think in the way that I've talked about it up to this point in the episode and, and probably will continue to talk about it, which hopefully doesn't become ad nauseum, is that I feel like this record is as much the expression of these three people as it is an example of a time and place within a culture that was only that way for a small window of time. And the window is about to close and it may have even closed by the time this gets pressed yeah. or at least is being encroached upon by the time that it was. And so if you care about the culture that was able to bring this about and even the social dynamics of the group houses that were happening, the way that people literally spent the days that they were awake during that summer, if you care about it and you value it, then uh you would embrace the idea of uh, documenting it or keeping it as an example of what can be done, even when simultaneous to this, some of the glossiest graphics in the catalog of Discord are being put out, whereas this is an opposite of that. There, there's no John Falls photograph on this. It's literally hand Thank God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's literally hand I'm just drawn. making all kinds yeah, yeah. of things. No, I know, I know. I know. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I honor your opinion and I see what I even agree with you for the most part. It just, you know, my mind when you say that goes to okay, but somehow the high back chairs didn't warrant that. Somehow the circus lupus almost didn't warrant that. Somehow. You know, so you know, girls against boys, so many bands, but somehow this record, which sounds like if you didn't know who it was and just said it was a riot girl band three years later from now of these kids from the Midwest, no one would blink an eye. It, there's nothing about this that, that screams innovation or even like pure expression. It feels very self-conscious to me. Yeah. Um. Well, yeah. Or or almost kind of um, placing emphasis because of the awareness of loss, as opposed to emphasis because of the celebration of that, what it is in and of uh, itself. 
uh-huh. um, that I, I, I see that a little bit, but again, I also, I, you know, clearly I'm going to continue to um, try, try <laughs> to make the loyal, sing the, well, or, or just, or just, yeah. or, or give, give a perspective that suggests that this is more than what it seems to be, but not necessarily because of what it is, but because of what it is. The a context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and clearly, you know, just as one example of one of the, the band members, previous bands, you know, a, a, a band like Fidelity Jones moved me much, much more than this moves me. But there's also Did a it way move in which you strong. Yeah, faith in something bigger. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, the, there's a way that um, I am moved by the cultural moment that I think this record is still on the side of that would not be possible without being reactionary to the elephant in the room. That's not possible six months from when this record's recorded. Wait, um, which one are you calling an elephant? Uh, you know, Nirvana, careerism. So re- really fast, one aside about Doug. Um, <laughs> I've been trying to remember what was the name of the band that had like a, a Doug devotee. There was some band that we would oh, see at like Jesus. the um, like the alternative festival or at like a positive God. four show or something. I saw him a few times, but the bass player like looked like him, dressed like him, wore his <laughs> bass super high like him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was trying to think like who could that have been? I have no idea. That's hilarious. I would have never remembered that without you just bringing that up. That's so funny. Yeah, I, and I there's no way I'm going to remember that name either, but. Yeah, but, That's but I like I like the idea that I thought of that when <laughs> listening to a band that Doug's in that has none of that <laughs> present. <within> Absolutely it. <laughs> none of it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, following. Yeah, following. So, mercifully, this song is one minute long. On YouTube, which obviously you probably didn't check out, but there's a, which I'm gonna, you know fess up that's where i listen to this the most or pretty much exclusively there's one extra song that's from a comp it's called secret language and i actually prefer that song to fall in like if secret language was the third song on this seven inch i'd be a happier camper here i I would actually lean towards being much more uh into it because it sucks to try to talk about this song that you probably haven't heard um but it's just got, it feels more successful. The lyrics are a little more interesting. They've got the kind of weird changes of the first song of Good Girl, but it works and and, and a very 60s vibe going on on it too. So it's kind of too bad. So following the opening riff again is my favorite thing. Like not just the opening note, like the first song, but the opening riff that it's so, uh, so gory. It's like, it's so like garage stomper. Then it kind of changes and the chorus I like, but again, it sounds like it could be any band, any teen band song, like one of a billion bands I've played shows with would have a chorus like that. It's not bad, but it's just with that opening riff, having, you know, inspiring so much promise, it, it kind of doesn't live up to it to me. And it's only, it's the middle song. It's the, you know, the kind of buried inside two type of track placement so it doesn't need to be like mind-blowing yeah and the only other thought i have overall is just as much as kathleen kind of frustrates on the other songs sometimes with 
trying too hard to not sound like herself. I don't think Sharon's necessarily a great singer at all. I, I think that's kind of the weak spot of this song. When they do vocals together, it sounds pretty good, but her lead vocal, just at least on this song, doesn't really do it for me. Yeah, I, I, yeah. so I, I did want to say that I think one of the strengths of the song, in addition to the stomp riff that it opens with, is the dual vocals as mm-hmm. they exist. But I also think that that dual vocal interplay is a character that I've been pointing to in the first song that we talked about as one of the indications that there's a, a certain amount of um, sophistication or awareness beyond just simple garage. I, I hear um, what you're saying with respect to that there's not as much clarity of feeling in the vocal delivery here as there are in the other two songs. But I also think that it prevents the seven inch from merely seeming like a Kathleen Hanna solo project side project solo thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so that's what I like about it is that this, this doesn't sound to me as simple as the first riff is partly because I don't know if you picked up on it, but I think it's in the last two refrains, they introduce some jazz chords. So there's some seventh chords that happen on the guitar that again uh-huh. is an indication that it's not just a garage example that it made me think of, which I uh, interestingly is also another exclamation point band <laughs> is that band from uh, the East Bay called POW, P-O-W exclamation point. I, I think they might be on Castle Face, but um, oh, mm-hmm. I, I've heard of, but I don't, I, I couldn't tell you what they sound like. Yeah, it has that same kind of like trebly insistent guitar stomp drive to it. Um, and I, I think that that's really well executed here, especially during the verses. And then the other thing that it made me think of is like, this is actually a almost like a hardcore song a little bit. I mean, it doesn't have the distortion or the, the aggression of some hardcore, but it sounds more like something that could have been on Mix Nuts Don't Crack than any of the other songs on the record. Um, Hmm. And I find it interesting that Sharon, who actually is of that earliest era of activity within that hardcore scene, um, is contributed a song to the seven inch that in tempo, in some of its energy, shares with that. Yeah, true. I could see that. And I think this is the perfect length of what a suture song should be. If the first song, if even the last one were one minute, one and a half minutes long. I think, it, and not because I think it should, everything should be shorter because I just don't like it, but just because, you know, sometimes longer doesn't make it better. Sometimes look at the Minutemen, look at my favorite Guided by Voices songs. Like it's not about how many times they play a part, it's about getting in and getting out and saying exactly what you want in a short little burst, and that's enough. And you could have thrown a couple more songs on here and it might have uh, fleshed things out. I don't know. Well, yeah. And, and also, I think that I think we both would agree uh, with uh, uh, to various extents that uh, the drums have a, uh, inconsistencies throughout the entire record. And the well, longer he's playing to a click track, I think. i'm sorry doug if you're listening like i i love every project you've done on bass so please don't take it i mean i don't think anyone in this band probably would take any offense because i doubt any of them even thought about suture in 1993 
or 94 or 95, et cetera. Like you said, it was so much of the moment. It feels like, it seems like, you know, yeah. Yeah, and and my point was just that a a song of a longer length just creates more opportunity for the listener to be aware of the Mm. expansion and contraction of tempos as a core element. And sometimes that can be really effective to have something shambolic and seem like it's going to fall apart and pull back. Or if there's a kind of almost cyclic way that the song, you know, speeds up, slows down the, the small, subtle things. But sometimes when literally it's like, oh, the stick got dropped and we just kept <laughs> You going. can hear the stick <laughs> right, hitting exactly. the rim and falling. And, 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 <laughs> right. And I'm not saying that happened here, but, you know, it's, yeah. it does it does then point to your question, which is why um, in this particular form did they choose to put it out? Was yeah. it because that's all they had or they couldn't do it again or whatever the case might be? But to your point, you know, short songs minimize the windows of opportunity for such um, inconsistencies to appear. Yeah, and I mean, that's something I've been thinking the whole time, talking about it too, is like, okay, if it's just documenting a moment and they and that's good enough, sure. But if they want to be of that time too, cassette, man, just th- put a cassette out, which they did. But like, <laughs> but like that speaks to that immediacy and that smallness and that moment of like, hey, this is, an intimate thing we did and this is about our friendship and about what we do together more than like hey we're gonna okay let's get discord to distribute it and then we'll sell it at this you know whatever yeah again i i think that even the innocence of immediacy was itself subject to the influence of some other impulse whether it was permanence or something else. And, yeah. and, and like you and, said, I mean, I, I'm being unfair in some ways, but I mean, how I, if we had an interview, perhaps we would have context of all the other ins and outs of what was happening around then and why they made this or that decision, but we don't. So every we've got a gag order on, <laughs> on interviews with uh, anyone from Suture. So, well, but you know, it leaves, it leaves more space for us to fill it up. Um, no, for sure. And, and and our and our challenge here is to you know make to give a fair on, reckoning, sure. Yeah, for sure, and and to also not dishonor the tradition of end on end episodes being super long. Yeah, um, well, we're I think we're doing <laughs> all right. <there. laughs> um. So yeah, let, let's move to pretty is. Yeah. So now we get to the song that I like. I can unequivocally say, I don't need to qualify it with well if you take this out or if you change that or if you you know if it only had this little thing or whatever like this song's good i i like it occasionally kathleen can be a little to use your word cloying with her like little girl voice on it but i do like it it's it reminds me of a lot of what was going on around that time uh, a band like tattletale or something like that like singing these kind of innocent love songs with the feminist consciousness at the same time, of course. And, you know, it's very melodic. It feels it feels like it wouldn't be super out of place, except for maybe it's even a little more symbolic than what was put out put out by them. But it it, it feels like if you put on a flying nun comp, it wouldn't be a hundred percent out of place. Yeah, it, it yeah, I think it also shares maybe not from uh persona disposition, but sonically it shares something with like unrest imperial which is a record made the same mm. year 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I also think that it sounds a, a little bit something that comes later, like the Ida Retson family record, uh, kind of mm-hmm. homespun and folky. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah. And that bass, man, it's the, the bass. Yeah. thank God I can say something really positive now. Like Sharon's bass part def- makes that song. If that wasn't there, it would, I don't know. The whole thing would, uh, implode like some of the other things. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it's the most successful interface of guitar and bass of the three songs that we have here. And I think it's the point where instrumentally some of what was successfully done with two vocals and the other mm-hmm. songs is conveyed here through um, what the guitar and what the bass does. And it also reminded me a little bit of like, I mean, obviously in a more open and uh, slowed down way, but it reminded me a little bit of Mission of Burma, where the guitar and the bass kind of melodically call and respond or push and pull against each other without playing exactly on top of each other or root note following each other in any way. And so that, that was... That was one of the big examples earlier in the conversation when I was talking about how Sharon's single note uh, proficiency and the melody she was able to get. I was thinking of this bass line in particular. Mm. Um, yeah, and yeah. And it's I, not I, a like it's not a particularly insistent bass, but it like something like Mishnah Burma. The bass is the is the uh, scaffolding that the whole song kind of rests on. Although somewhat similar to the drum situation. For a man that is so rock solid in his rhythm on bass, there's a couple spots of guitar where Doug audibly and loudly like hits the chord like way out of time from the rest of the <laughs> band. Well, but so and and I think that what so I I want to talk about what I think is the um the spectrum of or the breadth of this song, which I think thematically reinforces, um, so sonically reinforces the theme of the song. The song has a smallness to it, and there's a way in which there's a certain repetition or consistency of feeling. Mm-hmm. Musically, the way the vocal line is delivered, yeah. et cetera. It, it feels organic in a way. Yeah, and, and, and I also think that that's really in keeping with this idea of, I like you. Like, I like you. It, it, mm-hmm. I, one thing I'm sure of is that I like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like the feeling that's being expressed is, oh, but by the way, I really am not sure that I like you or <laughs> this is, I, I I understand that there's some, something is conflicted here. So you think the hesitancy of the tone of the lyric is mirrored by, is consciously mirrored by Doug's guitar? I do, especially because like around one minute 40, there's a volume swell where he brings the volume knob up and the guitar not only gets louder, but because of the interface of the guitar and the amp, it becomes thicker. And he yeah. even, when that happens, seems to respond to that energy or drives that energy because he starts to vibrate the guitar by moving it and bringing it against his body. And lo and behold, in the Suture song, there's a pick scratch that goes <laughs> up the strings so it's like all of a sudden, what has been somewhat of a, a mannered and uh, intimate song, at least as the guitar gets expressed, gets wild and weird and, and deviant. Um, and yet the other elements, while kind of coming up a little bit, don't go nearly that dynamic yeah. or weird or, 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 or off. 
And I feel like that is kind of a representation of the feeling that's being expressed, which is that I really do like you, but you're kind of bad to me. And I don't know that I'm going to be in this relationship or I should be in this relationship or whatever. Um, and so when I'm listening to it, I do hear somewhat of a, a symbiosis of theme and uh, performance. Mm. Wow. You are, uh, I'm going to use the G word again, man. You were <laughs> so kind to this thing. I need to check something instantly. No. Okay, good. I had to look up whether Forrest Gump had come out yet or not. Oh yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Thank God it hadn't, because well, one one would argue that one wishes it never had. But <laughs> sure. And, and, and if I had my choice, Suture Seven Inch definitely <laughs> should be out. <laughs> Forrest Gump, I would not be as generous about. Oh my God, that's funny. Uh, um, yeah, no, I, you know, I there's little things about uh, Pretty Is that, like I said, like the vocals and that that guitar little thing but i do i like it and each time it comes on i'm surprised how much i do like it you mentioned uh some bands that were doing similar thing i could see you said that i had a resin i could see uh yeah if you threw a male voice like dan hick or dan hick dan littleton's on it even just underneath what she was singing it would be really nice it's it's, it's good already but yeah or like that um, band from Rhode Island that was called Small Factory, that had guy girl vocals and um, mm, and know. that kind of um, versus or something. Yeah, although versus tend to go a little more. They had aggressive moments. Oh, um, they did. I know. Yeah, they yeah. were not as like um, willfully small and homespun as this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but like I said, thank God we get to the end and there's a song I can get behind. Well, yeah, and and um. And and I think that one virtue about the record is that the two sides are kind of, although clearly the same people are kind of present, the two sides feel different. The first two songs, mm -hmm. while they um, are different, but whether it's from a tempo or the, the message that's being conveyed, they do both seem to be kind of like garage uh, 60s primitivism, uh, whereas this, while it shares some of that minimalist impulse, doesn't follow into that uh, sonic template no it's true i guess i should have did a little more research because i'm noticing or just a little more careful research because i'm noticing as i kind of glance over what i pulled up before it looks like pretty much the other song secret language that i mentioned is the only other song that they recorded for some reason, when when the, the the mention of the cassette, I figured there would be like a, you know, three, four, five other songs. But I guess it's those four songs or are the uh, legacy, if you will, of Suture. The recorded evidence of something that occurred. That is exactly, that something <laughs> that occurred. <laughs> so yeah, good. I mean, I think we went pretty way deeper than I thought we'd go under the hood of this thing. Uh, Anything else uh, about the music or overall? What do you what do you think of this production? In terms of sound, you mean? Yeah, just in terms of sonics. Yeah, I. It strikes me that basically, I'm just going to repeat myself. It strikes me that a, a record that I very much like, uh, as I do everything Senator Flux did, was recorded at about the same time. Had such 
radically different radically different production from the same place Mm -hmm. um and and i think that's really interesting i also like that it feels to have something in common and at moments with the um the vile cherubs and uh because you know you and i affection you had a lot of affection for that band and, oh yeah and, and like the aesthetics of the band there's a way that the nuggets garage revisiting impulse that was happening in certain areas of the underground at the time gave way to much thicker and slicker iterations of it you know i'm thinking of a band like the screaming trees where like their early mm-hmm. releases are so much more rooted in sixties and not drop D tunings and, you know, going through Mesa boogies or whatever. Um, I, I feel like this is still in line with a, a version of that type of sound that resonates much more with me than what kind of follows as the momentum interfaces with commercial. Although in, in a way though, the center of flux is like the, and something like high back chairs to some degree, or like the furthest extremes of where that goes. Yeah, but in 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 both instances, and this again is just some of my own personal uh, what what I resonate most with personally. In both those instances, the guitars still remain pretty crisp and trebly, and mm-hmm. don't veer into that thickness. The fuzz. That, uh-huh. Yeah, the fuzz and the thickness that bedeviled. Uh, some of what became known as grunge or you know whatever mm. you want to call it um, sure. so i i hear your point about the clarity and slickness of those productions but there's still something light within them and mm. i'm not saying that i don't like heavy music I, I love a lot of heavy music but i don't like my heavy music to typically be um garage influenced yeah, yeah. you veer away from blues or exactly metal uh yeah for the most things. part yeah yeah, yeah i know mean, i'm not i don't mean to make a blanket statement <laughs> yeah, but no, yeah. I'll, I'll ride the lightning with the rest of them but you know <laughs> yeah all right well let's talk about what this thing looks like pull it up because as we mentioned i don't have it uh, where is it and they press 2000 which is again going to the whole homespun keep it small thing that it seems pretty interesting for something yeah. like that this but, little but, project to go to you know let's keep it small let's just keep it to a few thousand instead of uh <laughs> especially know, in the but, era now of where bands are pressing 50 or 80 of some things it's crazy yeah but sometimes that feels like just the way to create oh i know create and, demand yeah exactly so i'll start with the front cover an observation that the suture exclamation point uh, by a masked surgeon um, <laughs> is because you need something right now because you're doing an operation. And I feel oh, like that. Oh, oh, that, you mean like like the doctor calling out for the suture? Exactly. Suture. Give it to me, you know, mm-hmm. and that um, emphatic, I need this. That spirit and that needs to happen right now mirrors the way in which I think the record was made. That's why I think that is the dominant image on the cover um, and why there's an exclamation point there. Well, I got to tell you, I actually really like the cover. You know, it's another thing I can say without uh, having to <laughs> uh, do much quibbling about. Like, I, I like just graphically, it, it's clear, it's clean, and it's uh, interesting. 
and it's kind of pop arty. Uh, it it also reminds me a lot of the whole vibe of. I wonder if the same person. I I, I should have looked who did this, but uh, the Lost Morditas demo had a very similar aesthetic going on. Yeah. So was... Sharon Sharon gets the credit for the cover. Oh, okay. And, yeah. and the illustrations of the three of them. I presume that's the three of them because it looks like Kathleen with the. Do you think that's the... supposed to be Doug? Yeah, upside down. Yeah, <laughs> without his glasses. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't forget the telephone wire. I know, right? Um, that's what I took that to be. But what's okay. interesting is I think that's the same artist who um, drew the images for Chalk Circle that are in the Mixed Nuts Don't Crack, um, and, and it's credited as Greta S. But the the drawings look the same as that the similar style one thing that i noticed on the back is that the stars you know stars were very kind of of the moment oh They're yeah very similar to the super bad star um the record label of severin like mm-hmm. look at the graphic and the angle at which the star is um tilted uh-huh. and it's very very similar and that's like happening literally at the same time in the same town yeah and the little text Besides the trust your intuition is very uh, of that time period too. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I like I like that it's a mixture of type and then also handwritten because the thanks are handwritten and then again there's we different types about... of type too. Yep. Different yeah, fonts. Exactly. Although, you know, uh, again, like question can since you're gonna find a good excuse for this, why for such a <laughs> You know, this is just our our fun little project, and this was this moment. Why do we need to know who played what instrument on every single track? Who to blame? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, when voice is the first thing that's credited, you believe that that's the person who sang the lead, and then it's therefore easy to think that that's the person that sang the song or wrote the song, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the classic example of that is the band Sloan, where like, you know, four different songwriters, if the one is doing the lead, that's probably the guy that wrote the song. Yeah. Um, so I think that you're kind of hinting to that. I think you're also showing by having that rotation change that a part of the spirit of the band is to not rely on your expertise or mm. dominance of one thing or another. And well, if you- if you didn't know who did what, you might not get that. You might not be as aware that it's changing song to song. Where's Doug's song? That's what I want to know. Ain't got no time. <laughs> no. That's not Doug. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I have nothing negative to say about the the graphics there. I think they're successful. The labels themselves seem pretty thrown together. That's fine. It's not bad, but I definitely prefer side two, which is I've made obvious. Well, one thing I just want to say too is that you asked the question earlier about why wasn't this just a cassette versus actually doing a seven inch, and I think that that's actually of this exact moment as well. That when the seven inch kind of became the cassette in terms of what bands did when they recorded. Because um, a lot of, beyond just the initial impulse 10 years earlier than this, 
for self-releasing records. It seemed like the early 90s were an era where the seven inch, any and every band would have seven inches. And and yet the other side of it is that Simple they Machines- They also released a cassette. Yeah, well, in in Simple Machines did a series that was only cassettes. Yeah, yeah, right. So I I get I get the point. Um, mm-hmm. one one of which was that my new boyfriend that I talked about earlier that reminds me in some ways of the spirit. yeah I've never heard that that sounds interesting. It's great. It's really huh. cool. Well, cool. Yeah, they actually do an instrumental version of a Dagnasty song, which is kind of oh Jesus, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um. Okay. Well, with that. Let's talk to Kathleen Hanna, Sharon Cheslaw, and Doug E. Oh, wait. We can't. That's right. So instead, let's uh, talk about where these things live in our collection. So, Ken, what kind of neighbors does this Embassy Row production have? Yeah, this Mass Ave Embassy Row. Yeah. Um, so uh, unlike some... I don't know, rumors of strangeness that I heard about somebody filing seven inches with 12 inches all commingled <laughs> and get, getting strange about it. You right. know, love the man as I do. <laughs> I don't engage in such things. Um, so on the seven inch front, on the front side, Super Chunk obviously is an SU band that um, comes very close. And typically I'll order things in the order of release uh, by time. And so uh, the single Me, You, and Jackie Matu, which is from their uh, 2013 album, so about 10 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, the seven inch that I have in front of it. Um, and I, I like the this era of the band, just as I like all the other eras of the band. Um, Did you see that new uh, collection they got coming out? I, I have. Yeah, I have. Um, Do you I, have all those things? I don't have all of them. I have for a friend over the years tried to help him get every single super chunk seven inch. And so anytime I was traveling mm-hmm. and I'd find one that I knew he didn't have, I'd get it for him. And there's a way that super chunk. Now this, I think is the third compilation yeah, of yeah. like of singles. their rarities. And or singles. I mean, at EPs. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That kind of flies in the face of needing those original artifacts from a certain perspective but um i'm, I'm excited by it and i have the other two and i think they're, they're a band both great that, i think that yeah they're sure. super strong like compared to a lot of bands like i could listen to the uh, they're great uh driving music actually like i love putting those on for road trips yeah and, and i think they're a band that understood that there's just as much potential of power within a seven inch as a 12 inch, you know, yeah. partly because of the, the punk context from which they originate. Definitely. Um, and then on the back side, the, the neighbor closest is the first Swiss seven inch um, mm-hmm. down. So Hellfire records and, you know, which was Jason's uh, label, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and this was, you know, speaking of ambitious works, this not only came with the lyric sheet, but also the comic book about yeah. Swizz rocking the cap center, um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I, I think is uh, hilarious, but I, I suspect, or I believe that I probably got it at smash when it came out. Um, mm-hmm. And I liked that it was a clear example of, panned left and right hard guitars double tracked and it reminded me a bit of um out of step that way as a record of a two guitar band that had the hard left right but clearly it had like some of the chunkier you know cuffed chords yeah 
and a little metallic more metal and, and hardcore like yeah meat and potatoes hardcore then at a step. yeah no for sure and um and you know obviously um i think that it just like any great seven inch really did reflect who they were at the time and what they wanted to do even while the production was a little thin mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. it it you know the everything kind of is not as well executed as some of their later records. But one of the other things that I always really liked about it is that the picture on the back, and then I, I think there were other pictures around the same era of them uh, cliff jumping. Uh, into oh, the yeah. Potomac. Yeah. It's a great, great shot. Yeah. It, 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 it were, um, so obviously my father and his brother would go up to Carter rock area of great falls on the Maryland side as kids. And they would do that. And I heard about it. And then you and I and our friends would go down to um, Aquaquan to a rock quarry and do the same. And so just the image of like jumping off of rocks into water felt very youthful and not at all like, you know, hardcore band with the youth crew singing all along us. Like there's something about the spirit mm. of what it means to be young and to like energy that's... Yeah just as conveyed here as it would be in a in a show context so i I always like that or even like them being skaters but not having a picture of like someone carving a bowl or or a ramp at them jumping off of a rock quarry that's a yeah that's a good point that's cool and so and that makes me think too like down like how many bands had songs like I'm going down or down, down. Like at that time, like that was like one of the go-to words, man. Well, and I mean, let let's go back even further, and we could just go further and further. But you know, Rock Lobster goes down, down. Jeez, <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's where it started. No. Exactly. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Uh, so, I, great neighbors. Um, yeah. And and I'm I'm glad to have this seven inch now because before we were going to talk about this. I I didn't have it and I'm glad to now have it so that it can fit between those two. So, yeah, I mean, uh, if there's one person that gets anything out of this record in the world, it, it's good that it's made and you've become that person. So there, there you go. But yeah, no, I, I'm being facetious. For me, I've lost more seven inches over the years than I have anymore but some company it's got is super chunk ribbon who who needs light (laughs) yeah had to be super chunk and And i think that might have been during the era when a lot of bands were doing their um covers with barefoot press which was down in north carolina as well i think that that paper press on that seven inch that you just held up might have been that era of release i mean yeah that would make sense. And then on the other side, you're going to get a kick out of this one. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Our boys. Uh, our uh, old friends, compatriots, uh, high school bandmates. friends and bandmates in a band called Tonnage, which was uh, John Dugan on guitar vocals, John Weiss on Mike drums. Dugan. Mike Dugan. What did I say? Oh, did I say John? John yeah, Jesus not, not the chisel, not the chisel drummer. I know that guy's come up a lot lately in conversation. That's why. Jesus Christ! Oh my God, Mike, forgive me. Mike Dugan on guitar vocals, John Weiss on drums, which 
brother of Andrew. Andrew. Yeah. And quote visitor Jim on bass and voice. Yeah, Jim, Jim Bowser. Bowser, yeah. Yeah, so th- those were recordings that um Mike and Jim had done in Richmond before just oh. like Sharon or just like you and I moved out to San Francisco. Yeah. Um and they um had been working on songs where they would do rhythm section stuff and then Mike would record guitar on top of it and mm-hmm. Um, then when they moved out to San Francisco, they met John and he became their full-time member in the project. But the seven inch you have right now is the one that was done while they were still on the East coast, just the two of them. So I believe oh, okay. Mike's playing drums on that one. And oh, then they cool. put out a second seven inch that uh, John and maybe even a full length that John played entirely onto. I remember there being a tape, like a demo tape or something. Hmm. Yeah. Even earlier than this, there was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, c- clearly they were um, under the influence of Keypone, as oh, I think yeah. a lot of things that were happening in Richmond that were like, you know, the Minutemen, but with a little bit of a heavier, a little trio. bit of clutch thing going on. Exactly. Too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah but it, I have a lot of affection. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And the address, I just realized the band address is uh, the house I was staying at for a while, too. The Hate Street. Eight Street, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and it, yeah, for sure. No, and and you know, we all lived together. Well, Jim and I lived together on Fell, and then Mike and I, and I think even Jim at some point lived together on Fillmore. So all in the Lower Hate um, mm-hmm. is is where we kind of landed. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like Sharon. Oh, what am I talking about? That I lived with Mike in the in Fillmore too, not in the Hate. So yeah. Oh, maybe we we're in idea. the same house. Maybe. Yeah, but but like after each other because yeah, I don't think yeah. you and I because <laughs> I think you, we would have noticed each other. Yeah. Well, no, no, you were living over in um, the Richmond, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting though because I I do like I I I genuinely think that the fact that that is the seven inch that you brought out is <laughs> keeping with the the theme of you know DC and San Francisco interchange. Mm, because yeah. Because it it all uh, it all comes it, back to that exactly. Um, That's a good point. Yeah, we don't necessarily have to keep this in, but um, the version of the Sutra seven inch that I got mm-hmm. had an Easter egg in it, which was a handwritten letter by Sharon to whoever she sent this to originally. Oh, that's cool. It was just basically saying like, hey, this is my record over, but it's like, hey, you know, contact me at this address in San Francisco up until uh, let me see what it says. December 15th uh-huh. then contact me at this address oh, in San Francisco funny. and so it's like not not only is it the expression of like the summer of 91 or whatever the immediacy of let's just do this but it's also that time in life where you're moving every six months or whatever oh, God. And, yeah. and you're trying to keep in touch with people yeah through, Jesus through Christ yeah <laughs> uh, I don't miss that cool well Ever try.
Cool. Well, this is the part of the show where we won't be able to upload it to our playlist, which we have on Spotify and Apple Music. And do you recall the name of that playlist, Ken? The ever-evolving, mispronounced, and uh, incorrectly named Discord playlist. Ding, ding, ding. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I don't know the actual name. It is pretty close. Uh, It's the end on... Wait, end on end... Oh, my God. No, no, I'm going to get it wrong. Yeah, end on end, the ever-evolving Discord playlist. And... Yeah, it's over 10 hours at this point, and it would be a little longer after this episode, but no, I don't think it's on Spotify, and I didn't check Apple Music, but I don't believe this is. It's If Kathleen has anything to say with, about it, it's not on anything, so it's too bad, but if it were, what would be your vote for the song? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally in line with you that Pretty is is the best executed and i think uh maybe despite their efforts <laughs> to subvert it <laughs> well yeah and, and i just think it really uh is a i think it's a good song that conveys its feeling both sonically and lyrically and mm-hmm. uh and i like that it showed another side of the band literally on the other side of the record <laughs> true yeah yeah I could totally see them playing that song at the International Pop Festival of all places and, you know, going on before, say, Beat Happening or something, you know. Or Spinanes or... Sure. Well, I mean, be a little... few bands before Spinanes, probably, I would think. <laughs> <laughs> the, the headliners that they were... Actually, I think that was their first show, was that in... Was it could Spinanes be. first show. Oh, Spinanes, yeah. really? Uh, yeah, I yeah. I didn't know that. Crazy. Uh all right. Well, it's been good as always on these podcasts. Now you've uh, tripled down on <laughs> um, on the shows. I'm glad to have you on end on end. I mean, it's it's only appropriate, and it had to happen at some point. So thank you, Ken. It's, it's been a pleasure. And what do we got coming up uh, on the next episode? Do you know? I do not know, but given that <laughs> this is seventy six point five. Oh, and before we say though. We we have to notate, thank fucking God we're out of 1992 after this episode. It's it. This has been the longest year of of yeah. releases of any Discord era period. So it's amazing we made it through it. And I mean, now we're it will be up to what 13 years into the label's existence coming up. So it's pretty interesting. Well, yeah, uh, you know, because I think that like 100, which was like a big mile marker, is only basically 24 releases from now, although there's some halves even in there yeah, right, yeah. numerically. Um, I, I think that it takes until, what, 2000 for that to come out? 100? That sounds right. I think somewhere around there. So, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you you've done the uh the stamina and endurance that it required to get through 92 and <laughs> on to 93 and uh what do we open 93 with i don't know oh you yeah, look yeah okay I, I well what I we... <laughs> okay discord 77 
Jawbox, Motorist with Jackpot Plus. Yes, exactly. And it's listed the other way around a lot, which I, I actually, I think Jackpot Plus is the A-side, which is so strange to me. But be that as it may, that's what's coming up. One of, but not the last, releases on Discord by the band Jawbox. Looking forward to it. It's a great record. It's a great podcast, and it's great to be a part of it. <laughs> Thanks for doing it. And how do we bid adieu on said podcast, my friend? Um, in this era, I believe it is. <laughs> Take it away, Craig. And I-